Hello, everybody. So today is uh, Sunday, May 26th, and we are bringing you Block Digest 177 at block height 577,892. So what is going on, everybody? Oh, back for a Sunday, Sunday show. Yeah, beautiful Sunday, by the way. Man, yeah, it's spring here, so it's good to go. A lot of stuff to discuss. Feels like we almost took a hiatus, so there's been some stuff building up. How are you guys doing? No par, Janine? The bells are ringing extra long today. <laughs> I really like the sound of those bells. How about you, no par? Are there bells ringing with your head? Of all the big uh, university news? That was, man, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know what that means, but I've been using Wasabi on OSX for a while, and Ew! I'm so embarrassed that it's it's so bad. I can't believe it. It it thinks those don't come out right away, but you have to run for hours and it crashes and for different reasons. I'm I'm so sad, but I might have fixed things, but it's it's so hard. On another note, uh, tomorrow I'm going to the hospital because my girlfriend got too fat. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, shit. What the hell? Oh, man. You're in trouble now, Nupar. So, what's up with you, Shinobi? Uh, well, I ran away to California for a week. Uh Putzed around on the beaches, up in the mountains. It was pretty fun. Fun times. Your brain's still here with us? Uh, yeah, it's mostly. It's re recovering from highway hypnosis and sleeping in a, in a car. Well, it still sounded like fun. But, yeah, like you're saying, man, it's been a little bit since we went on. A lot of stuff stacked up, man. We should probably just dive right into it. Why are you driving? Why didn't you just take a high-speed rail? Uh, it's uh, a buddy's moving back oh, into man. the area, so we needed to tow his uh, his truck that would have died if he tried to drive it all the way across the country. Oh, and... okay. You didn't notice I was referring to that Americans don't have high-speed rail. <laughs> but never mind. I got it. Yeah, Shogobi's brain is still waking up. All right. I don't know I have two quick notes, and then I give the the thing to 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 who to Shinobi again. So one note that we just cannot not note it that the final season of Game of Thrones sucks. Ruined it! <laughs> Fucking ruined it! 
yeah that's about it and the other thing is the channel is is gonna have a other webinar who's behind the ransomware attacks on may 30. so yeah go i will probably talk about it when if i succeed to 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 go this time but if not then you might want to check it out so shinobi what's up with opaycheck output outputs hash verify well um so jeremy rubin um you might know him as the complete dumbass who is rushing to say that Binance should try and bribe miners to reorganize the chain after Binance was hacked, uh, put out a BIP for a new opcode that would be um, kind of restricted to within the script spend of um, a taproot spend um you know like we were talking when i, I went over taproot um i believe in the last episode there's going to be kind of a script version um isolated just within the merkle trees of a taproot script so that's going to kind of have different script versioning and potentially different scripts than outside of taproot and this is a proposal for one of those special scripts confined to taproot and you know, I, I still want to spend some time thinking about it, but, you know, right now I'm kind of leaning towards thinking that this is not that bad of an idea. And, and this just goes to show that if you are assessing things properly in this space, um, even though Jeremy is a colossal fucking dumbass with the whole Binance situation, um, ideas should be looked at independent of who they came from. So pretty much the the gist of op check output hash verified is that it would within the spending of an input through uh, taproot script um, verify a 32 byte script verify that there's only one input in the transaction and I'll come back to why that's important in a bit and then verify that a SHA-256 hash of the outputs for the spending transaction match what's encoded in the script. So in other words, like the, when you go to spend through this taproot script, there are predefined outputs of that transaction in the script itself. So the spending transaction can only um, spend coins to the specific outputs that have already been defined in the script so it limits where you can spend those coins and now one of the things um although not the main reason he's designed this that you could do with this is covenants which have been talked about for a long time um, regarding ways to kind of build secure vaults where you can pull back funds if something was stolen um, within a time window. And I'm not really a big fan of covenants because they are potentially a huge fungibility risk. But, you know, the one thing that's making me kind of lean towards thinking this new opcode is a good idea is that being taproot, um, or used in taproot scripts, there's always going to be that top level key above all of the scripts where you can just spend it wherever. And so it's kind of um, not 
locking things up in the same way that past covenant proposals have, have done. But the, the main rationale for why he wants this opcode is actually for condensing transactions during times of very high fees. So like, for instance, you know, look back at 2017 when the, the fee market went bonkers. Let's say you were trying to withdraw $50 from Coinbase. Well, that's not really viable when you're talking $30 fees. So what this opcode would allow is let's say a big business like Coinbase has a bunch of transactions to, to process. What they can do is just confirm a single output on the blockchain that has this kind of script, uh, check output hash verify in a taproot script and just get that confirmed. And this would allow them to have a whole tree of transactions that would break things up into pretty much the, the opening tree where each way along the tree, there's another one of these check output hash verify scripts. So that when fees are very high, what they can do is, is get that one transaction confirmed. And then you've effectively transferred control of everybody's coins because that's confirmed now. And as fees go down and pressure alleviates, people can slowly start unfolding that tree of transactions until it gets down to everybody has their individual outputs and total control over their money. And the way that check output hash verify requires specific predefined outputs be part of the transaction spending it, it guarantees that once that first transaction confirms, the only place this money can go is where it's supposed to go. And the, the nice thing about this is too, you know, things like this, you know, because lightning kind of works along the same principle requires that you actually keep some data secured in order to actually get your coins. And the way this works is really strictly speaking, um, you could a little easier reconstruct things just as long as you know the outputs. And, you know, everybody just gets this one thing confirmed, fees go down, and then everybody winds out the tree and gets individual control of the money. And this would be a, a good way to really optimize, you know, businesses processing lots of transactions in a really efficient way, because you just get that one transaction confirmed that batches, you know, potentially hundreds or thousands of people's transactions. And even though all of those people can't immediately go spend that money right away by themselves, it's still guaranteed to eventually wind up in their control. So you can make use of the blockchain's finality in settlement in a much more efficient way with that slight trade off of having to wait a little bit to, to fully be able to spend the money wherever you want. And, you know, this it's dynamic, too. So like this can kind of condense a shit ton of things if fees are outrageously high. But if they're just a little too high, you know, you can just condense it a little bit and have different um, lengths as far as the, the tree um, paths to go down for everybody to get individual control of their money. And now to go back to why this kind of only allows one input in a transaction, it's because <clears throat> that script locks um, the, the outputs 
in the spending transaction. And so if you have multiple inputs this way, it just gets really complex in, in making sure that everything is structured the right way and that money doesn't get lost or where things go wrong. And so the, the simplest thing to do is just, you know, allow only one of these um, scripts to be spent as an input each time this is done, just to keep that complexity as, as simple as possible. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm still kind of trying to think this through and like the, the different trade-offs or, or downsides to this, but I, I really am right now leaning towards this is a not that bad of an idea because being taproot, there's always something at the top where everybody can just cooperate and spend it however they want. So there's always that out to get out of the chain of transactions where you can only spend it to specific addresses and something else too i haven't re i haven't really had much time to to kind of think down this road because i've been driving on the road for like the last week but you know this this construct could also potentially um be used to redesign other constructs in the ecosystem like something like this could be used to um, be the primitive for constructing things like channel factories or, you know, like I said um, when we first started, things like vaults that use covenant-like structures but still have that top-level cooperative out or even potentially, um, you know, redesign the primitives that coin joins use. And, you know, it's it's really something I don't think is going to really happen anytime soon you know these things obviously need to be taken slowly but I, I'm, I'm looking pretty optimistic about this because you know you can always refine things like this or tweak design aspects and ultimately it's it's really nice to be able to kind of have that variable efficiency in batching in a way like this to use the main chain itself and then also it's just, it's never a bad thing to have different primitives to be able to construct all of the different things that we're building on top of this, like channel factories, payment channels, even coin joints. Like the, the more ways to do things, the, the more flexibility in what you can actually accomplish with those things. And so I think I'm, I'm gonna wind up leaning in favor of this as this idea kind of gets hammered out and discussed and talked about. And hopefully in the next couple of years, uh, something like this or this itself will actually be in the scripting system and something that people in the ecosystem can use. I was able to follow you for a surprisingly long time, but then I get a bit lost and then I get completely lost. So can we go back to the most simplest example? And one thing that was not clear for me, that what does this do? Uh, does this check the hashes of the output hashes of all the output hashes, or it just says yeah. there must be one hash? No, it checks all of, of the outputs. So like if you go to spend this script, then there, let's say there's three outputs to guarantee that that one output gets split up three ways between the people whose money it is when you go to spend the script it's going to make sure that all three of the outputs in the transaction exactly match 
the in that order hashes in the script in that order mm -hmm. right well I, i'm not sure about ordering um it didn't really say anything but it's it, the hash check is going to make sure that it's going to the specific address that's specified that it's the exact amount that's specified and that that's okay. where all the coins go okay so how does this help in the exchange case when when you when you put in and then you can withdraw i don't understand well, no, it's, it's just about batching transactions. So like, let's say like a payment processor has to process payments for like a hundred different people. And those payments could be anything from a couple dollars to like a few hundred dollars, but fees are like $50. Well, that's going to make it impossible for a bunch of those people to actually get their payment processed on chain. Right. It's too expensive. Because it's too expensive. Yeah, so what uh, this allows okay. you to do is anchor that one first transaction that commits to a series of transactions using um, check output hash verify. And once that one transaction confirms, everybody is guaranteed that they're going to get their money. So they, they won't have total control of it right away. But once it's confirmed, it's guaranteed that when fees go down, like everybody can unwind it and get their money and they don't have to trust that payment processor through the entire time that fees are high to just hold on to their money and not rip them off. So, so the batch transaction, no, a transaction before the batch transaction, Oh man, no, I don't understand. Sorry. Okay, to think about it like a payment channel. Like you, you confirm the non-cooperative um, transaction, and then the one side gets their money back, and the other side has to wait a little bit, but they're guaranteed to get their money back if it's not in old channel state. So it, it's like this, or it, it's like that, but for a bunch of people, and on top of you know the guarantees that a lightning channel closing like that have this has the guarantee that that those coins being spent have to have the exact outputs guaranteeing that it goes exactly to the right people's addresses with the exact amount it's supposed to like locked into the script so it, it's just like a, a tree of transactions like you confirm one it breaks off into two those break off into two and the whole way down to the leaf it's a consensus level enforcement that everybody's getting the exact amount of money they're supposed to to the exact addresses that they specified okay yeah i mean it sounds interesting but for sure it's uh you know technically complicated but i mean that's where it's we're at right now i mean geez what we're we passed two years of SegWit now, SegWit implementation. Yeah. And now it's like, yeah, Taproot, Graphroot, all this stuff's coming down the line. And, you know, where the efficiency gains will be, I'm sure everybody's going to be trying to implement some sort of solution with it. And, uh, yeah, all these batching uh, methods. I was reading something earlier today about inter-exchange batching and uh, how that could work. And if, if, uh, if that works, then, yeah, I could see how this could you know, make some of these uh, fee problems uh, sort of calm down if uh, they get heated up. I don't know. I mean, this is where it's like, yeah, I'm still kind of in the waiting to see, but it sounds interesting for sure.
No, it's it's like a, a perfect middle ground because you know in 2017 if you were trying to get money off of some platform that was below the fee level well it's just like you're you just have to wait until the fees go down and that whole time you're waiting that platform is in total control of your money like this way like you still have to wait to really get full control of your money but that whole time you're waiting you don't have to trust anybody like that money cannot wind up anywhere except in your control at the end all right let's move on to bitgo's lead engineer what happened there, Janine? You're up, Janine. Oh, sorry. Just one second. Okay. So um, you may have heard that earlier this month, um, nine people, including a uh, or multiple former AT&T and Verizon employees or contract employees were caught passing on private information about their customers to SIM swappers in order to steal money, particularly cryptocurrency. And we've known for a long time that this was a problem and that people who use mobile devices for storing or authorizing activity for cryptocurrency accounts were often targeted. And it's happened once again to a relatively prominent person uh, a guy named Sean uh, Kunse, I'm not sure I pronounce his last name, Sean, is uh, the engineering lead at BitGo. And on May 20th, he published a Medium post to detail how he lost north of $100,000 worth of, I don't think, I don't remember whether he said Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general, but north of $100,000 worth of cryptocurrency after a Simport attack drained his Coinbase account. And his post includes a few graphics um, which point out like the warning signs, um, certain activity alerts that were coming up that he basically missed or ignored along the way. And um, since this story came out, I mean, you can read the, the thing to find out what happened. Um, but I've seen an increase in people sharing uh, a study from Google which concluded that SMS-based two-factor authentication is 99% effective against bulk phishing and 76% effective against highly targeted, um, i.e. nation-state phishing. And they're posting, some of them were posting this in response to this story because one of the issues was that he had SMS two-factor authentication enabled for his Coinbase account. And that's what allowed them, this attacker, to gain access to his account because they were able to take control of his phone by swapping the SIM card and then doing a bunch of password reset things. And that's how they got in. And so in general, for most people, I would agree that some form of 2FA, even if it's SMS-based, is probably better than nothing, which is the point of that study. But there's a reason that people who own Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are being targeted, which is that the fact that they own, you know, any kind of financial asset that's going to be held on their phone or is in an account that's authorized by some credentials on their phone, that adds a significant financial incentive for the attacker that is not generally available for other people that they might target. So... If you read the reports on the AT&T and Verizon employees, I believe one of them said that uh, they were only paid about 
$1,500 in a year for passing on sensitive client data to these SIM swappers. So if you have knowledge that a particular particular person is not only involved in cryptocurrency, but um, you can find their name and phone number and figure out what their mobile provider is, then that target only needs to store, you know, or own some amount of cryptocurrency on that phone um, that is worth maybe a few thousand dollars, maybe even a few hundred at minimum for it to be, you know, a baseline worthwhile scenario for a SIM swapper to go after them by bribing these telecom employees. So if you're storing more than a few hundred dollars on a mobile device um, and that mobile device is constantly or regularly logged into accounts at custodial services that hold it for you um, or you're holding it yourself in a local wallet, um, you should be aware that this is a risk for you, especially if you live in the United States, because this is probably a bigger deal in the United States than elsewhere like Europe. Um, you should also keep in mind that your key storage practices might work for you now at the current price level, but when you have something like Bitcoin with significant upside volatility, you may have to reevaluate and change your setup in the future, even on a planned basis. Um, I mean, you should be revisiting storage anyway to test your uh, recovery process, but you may need to change it to, you know, account for the shift in the incentives if your Bitcoin goes, if it massively increases in value. Now to get into the matter of Coinbase's responsibility in the matter, first of all, I find it a bit ironic that a BitGo employee um, had a large amount of money stolen because an exchange's withdrawal process did not flag it as suspicious and maybe put more constraints in place to make sure that you can't just, you know, do one withdrawal of $100,000 worth of Bitcoin and that's it. And there's no extra, you know, checks to make sure that it's not a malicious withdrawal. And the reason it's ironic is because Bitco's multi-factor authentication system had the same vulnerability as Coinbase with regards to Bitfinex when they were hacked a few years ago. And, you know, because Bitco had an automated um, authentication system in terms of their token that they were supposed to use to authorize withdrawals, that was not performing any like out of band, you know, talking to a human first. So they weren't, you know, alerted to the fact that, hey, this is a huge amount of money that's leaving this exchange. We should probably check to make sure that it's okay with them. Um, there was no human being involved. And so, uh, yeah, that was the service they offered to exchanges. So it's ironic that Coinbase has the same problem and now it's just lost one of their employees, a lot of his personal funds. And Mike Belshi, the CEO of BitGo came in a day after this um, post was made and he tweeted, this shows that Coinbase is more interested in signing up 100,000 users a day than keeping their users secure. SMS 2FA is easy to set up, but how many users are they exposing each day to account takeovers? BitGo banned it years ago because it isn't secure. And so while I think it's good to see that Sean is made in his post, he makes recommendations based on what he knows he should have done differently. That doesn't really make up for the fact that it's not only scary that the engineering lead of a major company who certainly knew better or should have known better as an engineering lead, he didn't even make, you know, a reasonable effort to protect his own holdings that were of significant value, but that Coinbase you know, as a company that's now starting to advertise itself as a custodial solution for, you know, individuals and as well as institutions, 
that they would just allow a withdrawal of that size with no delay or additional checks like they should have actually called him <laughs> on his phone. And like at that point, I mean, there's so many things you can do to, you know, check in with a person um, that they could have done with that amount that they should have and they didn't. And they're actually their checks for the password reset on his account were actually stronger than the checks for the withdrawal of the money. Um, he, I think he had to, the reason that the attack took about 24 hours is because first the attacker reset his Coinbase password, presumably so that he wouldn't um, either, I think it was because they needed to obviously have the new password sent to the email address so that they could see it. Um, but also because uh, I don't, it depends on whether they had access previously or if they wanted to actually like prevent him from having further access to the account as well. But I just find it weird that their password recovery process was actually more stringent than the actual withdrawal. So if Coinbase is going to sell itself as being a good custodial service on the basis that they provide a higher standard of security for customer funds, despite the sacrifice of counterparty risk protection against them, I think this is a serious blow to that credibility. Absolutely. Good Lord. Like this was just uh, one of those things when it broke, it's like, just, you had to chuckle at it. I mean, BitGo out there, you know, just recently with uh, South Dakota planning out a legal custodial solution for institutional businesses and their lead engineer has over 12.5 Bitcoin sitting on a uh, on a mobile device. And that just is uh, crazy whenever you're thinking about, uh, you know, custody solutions for your Bitcoin and how to be safe and how to do best practices to avoid these sort of men in the middle attacks because they are everywhere. And uh, if you screw up in one place, you know, like you're saying, I mean, you know, they can get access to your SIM and maybe they don't have access to your account yet, but they're going to rechange your password. And now they do have access. They got your two factor and your password. And, uh, you know, just like it's a damn good reminder. I mean, like just, you know, make sure double check all exchange emails are from the exchange or, you know, weird Google Docs. Don't even, you know, click toes or weird SMS and unknown links that uh, just look dubious like avoid all that stuff because it's just a, it's really a dangerous environment whenever you're talking about uh, digital systems and the way that they could be compromised. And there's just so many open doors that uh, they could try and work their way in. You just have to be very diligent about what you're doing. And you'd think a lead engineer at a company like BitGo would be doing that. But yeah, I mean, like you're saying though, at least he kind of recognizes the things that he could have done. You know, think about it two-factor authentication it's a it's something that you have to break both of them in order to get the money right and it ended up being uh, oh you have to break one of them and you get the money i mean it's, it's such a so ironic Mm -hmm. I mean, 2FA is something you need to take way more seriously when you're dealing with digital bearer assets. I mean, it's like it's still mind-boggling to me how many businesses in this space do not offer other types of 2FA, like an authenticator app or a hardware token like YubiKey. 
it's it's just fucking mind-boggling or, or like or shit like we're in a space where the, all of this technology is built on cryptographic keys like how has nobody set something up where you can use a, a key or a wallet to sign for something on a separate device or a hardware device or something well there's a good little thought that came out of this story i mean yeah why hasn't somebody done that that needs uh Somebody needs to work on that. Mm -hmm. All right, though. Uh, any more thoughts on a major company getting egg in the face? Just another, like, I wrote this down. Like, yeah, you know, if you're in the U.S., yeah, you're the most vulnerable. Like, uh, you're the ones with the most information out there that's uh, up for grabs and sell. So, you know, if you're in the United States, be extra precautious. And finally, we arrived to the point of the show, what everyone was waiting for. Shinobi is going to talk about Craig Wright. Oh, Copyright oh. all the things! Yeah, so this is just the latest in what is becoming the most cringeworthy epic comedy on Earth. Uh, Craig Wright filed a copyright claim for the Bitcoin white paper and source code and he's not even the first person to do this <laughs> so he probably just looked shit up and found out somebody else did this previously and then whoa i'll do that too and the best part is this synced up perfectly with a coin geek propaganda piece that tried claiming the u.s government has officially recognized craig wright is satoshi nakamoto and this elicited a response from the U.S. Copyright Office explicitly clarifying that they have not recognized any such thing. Nothing has been granted. They have simply acknowledged the filing of the paperwork making the claim. And that this does not mean anything whatsoever in terms of anything being acknowledged by the Copyright Office or any part of the U.S. government. And I cannot think of a single time in my life where the Copyright Office has actually made a response to a situation like this with, with somebody effectively attempting to pull off legal fraud just by using a filing for a claim as the basis for it. And really, the best part about this is that the Bitcoin source code was released under the MIT license. So it, it's open source forever. Like it's out there to be used, however you're going to use it. And that license is completely irrevocable. Like that, that's it. End of story. It was put out under that license. It is open source. It can never be withdrawn from that license or from being open source. Like it's done. That's the state of things. And it is completely impossible to legally revoke that. Like that's the license it was released under. That is the license it will stay under for the entire existence of that code base. So like to see him sink to this depth to try to get that extra for like, look, here's, here's some proof that isn't signing a cryptographic key. Like he is scraping the absolute bottom of the barrel in terms of things to try to 
put out there and portray as proof of anything. And he's scraping the absolute bottom of the barrel, searching for idiots who are stupid enough to actually fall for shit like this. So like this, this is just epic. Like at this point, I'm just kicking back with my popcorn and waiting for some kind of legal fraud to finally catch up with him and wind his ass up in jail because it's going to happen. Oh man, yeah, it's gonna happen. Like, uh, I mean, you, it's kind of crazy to me that he's taken this spotlight route within all these legal courts to where he's got to actually try and prove that he's Satoshi Nakamoto, and we know that that's not gonna happen. So he's just gonna end up with eventually this proof of not being able to prove something. And uh, yeah, like the cheese, the idea that you could copyright uh, an MIT licensed open source, you know software i mean come on man this is just getting ridiculous it's like he's not even going towards smart spotlights i mean like you know i mean I just, this is just getting crazy but uh yeah everything over there is it's as far as not just bsv but you know the whole bcash fork saga it's uh it's just been popcorn all the way down well and this is also another reason why his claim to being a lawyer is just absolutely laughable because he not only completely misunderstands what kind of function the copyright office actually serves and what they can't do like you know actually say you're the founder or creator of bitcoin like that's not something they do just because they register your copyright claim and two it's funny that he doesn't understand the legal consequences of even if he did get the copyright of, you know, like that doesn't invalidate the licenses, Shinobi says. So like his claim to being a lawyer is just becoming increasingly stupider. It just makes no sense that this guy has any legal knowledge whatsoever. Not no. to mention the, the risks of filing um, false documents and claims with a government. Yeah, I mean, like, and because he spends so much time talking about, I'm patenting this, I'm patenting that, and patent law is very important, and he doesn't even understand the basics of how this stuff works. Like, I don't know how anyone can take him seriously as being a lawyer. He obviously isn't. And actually, um, I mean, I don't know where, he, I think he, well, last time I looked, he was still living in the UK, but if he is living in the UK, it's actually against the law to claim to be a lawyer when you're not a lawyer. So another illegal thing on his list of many criminalities. Yeah, and what kind of rag like CoinGeek runs with that sort of headline? Like the U.S. government admits Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto because they submitted his name in because he's been submitting this. I mean, it's just like, I, I don't know. It, we're living in a day where people can investigate all this stuff and there's all sorts of people out there putting out content about how ridiculous mainstream sources are and how much you should check everything that you're reading. And I mean, like, especially in this space, like, who are you convincing? Man? Well, <laughs> so when it came out, then someone just sent me this thing that, oh, look, uh, granted copyright access. And I'm like, Oh man, it's stupid. I'm not gonna even look into it. It's it's just stupid. Believe me. And you know when when you said believe you and there is an article that says otherwise. 
not gonna believe you <laughs> so it's like there are people they are convincing with this yeah well you know you clown world not Honk. just not just clown world is but it's like it's that weird thing that happens when people invest their tangible value into something and you just give them you know a little inch and they're gonna run with a mile as far as like yes my value it's 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 here it's sound i mean like my investment thesis is correct oh man what a it's, it's, you know it's headline reading like roger where is the ceo of bitcoin.com so it becomes the ceo of bitcoin and that that's happened to me before that oh people said oh i'm not the ceo of bitcoin i'm like what what and and this is this is headline reading. This is 99% of all the people. It's, it, it's, you know, it's, but in the end, they don't really matter. Who matters is who, who is working in it and working on it. And they have to get the accurate information. The rest doesn't, doesn't matter that much. Well, I mean, like, they're the ones that, uh, I mean, we were talking a little bit about this before the show about, you know, a lot of people are going to feel the pain of, like, uh, free markets. And the way that you learn in that is, uh, you know, a lot of people actually lose this value. So, uh, I guess uh, you guys want to go in and talk about somebody else losing value, possibly? Go for it. All right. So, speaking about a little bit of scammy stuff, let's... Talk a little bit about what's going on over at HitBTC. Last week, we talked about HitBTC and their potential problems with uh, back in late March when Luke Jr. was having trouble getting Bitcoin out of his account. Then back around the proof of keys timeline, there was an influx of withdrawal delays that shined a light on their potential to back up their volume with actual reserves. Well, now it's coming back out again at proof of research or crypto medication tweeted out a thread on the topic showing recent trouble with users of the exchange across various social media media platforms and claims that HitBTC has liquidated their reserves from 720,000 Bitcoins to down to just over 350. Crypto medication has some blockchain analytics that follow these funds from various address clusters. They go on to claim the Bitcoins in these clusters belong to a couple of known gambling scams and that HitBTC was being used to launder the money. While the bulk of these 400, while the bulk of these Bitcoins, 480,000, moved to address clusters that belong to other exchanges. So after tracking those outputs and recalculating HitBTC's balance, he got to a figure of 356 Bitcoins. Sorry, they got to a figure. And uh, that's what remains in their cold storage. Now, this is all just speculation considering they could be holding Bitcoin and crypto and other yet to be no made public addresses. HitBTC even responded to a question in the thread asking, why are there withdrawal issues on your platform? And the response was, quote, we are working with hundreds of foreign software products integrated into one system. Sometimes upgrades and updates are needed for this software and we are, look and we are working on the technical maintenance at the top of our speed. Once the upgrade is over, all transactions are back online, close quote. So the official response was, it's all about upgrades and updates that is causing all the withdrawal trouble. But the reality is no one knows but the exchange operators if they are solvent. 
these questions will always be out there for some of these exchanges that use dodgy practices. There are other users on this platform that have come forward since the thread with more issues facing withdrawals. Then just this morning, HitBTC released a statement to try and calm the worries of their user base. The tweet says, quote, we would like to state our position in a clear way in regards to the recent write-ups attempting to portray HitBTC in an unfavorable light. We'd like to address some of these issues and provide context into why they happened, close quote. And then there's a, a TDL, TDL, TLDR of the statement at the top because I honestly didn't have time to read it read through yet, but uh, it is at hitbtc.com's Twitter account if you guys want to check it out. Now, it's the first tweet up there, and uh, we'll have the show notes later on. But uh, in that TLDR, they say, quote, HitBTC is the most technologically advanced digital asset spot trading platform operating since 2013. We focus on security of the custody and the platform. That's why we never got hacked. Rumors and unfounded allegations are mostly spread by non-professionals or being paid for. Our custody has never lost users' users' assets. There are no irregularities in platform's performance or balance sheet. We are improving our public communication approach. Close quote. So uh, that's where the situation lands right now. I'll keep monitoring it to see how things progress. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about how this evolves in the future. So uh, that's where we're at. Do you guys think they are really installing some uh, new backend infrastructure or, uh, you know, there's some <laughs> unknown reserves out there or are they the most technologically advanced spot platform, like they say? I mean, no, that, that marketing just sounds so bullshit, even if it's true. Like this is now the third exchange that I've heard in the past two weeks that has claimed that they're the only exchange that has never been hacked. It was Coinbase and now hit BTC. And I think, I don't think Kraken, I mean, as far as I'm aware, I don't think there's been a hack at Kraken. They haven't claimed that. Um, it might've been a different one, but it's like the, at least the second exchange that I've heard in the past two weeks that claims they're the only one that's never been hacked and we're the best. And it's like, no, you're not even, no, <laughs> like that's not how it works. I looked into a user report and it's really clear that what they are doing, you give them the money and they don't give you back. I mean, it's, it's hit BTC is a scam. I'm not being paid for and I'm a professional and I'm spreading this rumor. So, but, but this response that, oh, those are non-professionals or being paid for, like this is such a scammer response. I, I don't think, I don't think there is any doubt at this point that if you look at look at the the, the Reddit, at least the on our cryptocurrency or BTC reports, then it's just no, it's 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 a scam. Sometimes you get your money back, sometimes you don't. Yeah, I mean, this kind of just plays into what we're just talking about. I mean, there is a whole culture of people that just run with headlines and people listen, listen to them and then they go with what they say. And, uh, you know, it all kind of reaffirms where they stand. And if they just did a little bit of digging and research a little bit more, you know, they could find a way to, you know, provide themselves some safety from an eventual issue that would run into their 
funds on these exchanges. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it is something that just keeps coming up time and time again. And this does sound like just a marketing pushback to try and keep things moving forward until and it's an eventual exit scam or somebody gets in trouble. You know, it's not that easy, by the way, <clears throat> because, for example, we got a report uh, a while ago that Wasabi stole my money. Uh, Cops look, cops look, cops look. Wasabi stole my money, and it turned out that his wife sent the money to local, BTC, local Bitcoin. So it's like, you know, you can see this kind of thing. So it, it's it's not that easy. You have to have a. I don't even know what you need, but like, hmm, you you need to to go through. Would need to go through every or or at least some cases that hey did this case uh, have been resolved or not and and if if too many cases are not resolved then that's when when the issues are there mm -hmm. i mean you know this this does look really shady but you know at the same time over the years it's like i'm stepping back and taking more and more of a grain of salt with situations like this because you know half the time yeah there is shady shit going on and something implodes but the other half of the time it's users who aren't like willing to follow the rules of the platform or trying to skirt around things like kyc requirements and as much as it sucks it's a business kind of doing what they have to do and people just getting pissed off about it and it's i mean you sh it's just, just something to to keep in mind like yeah there are a lot of scammy businesses in this space and it, it's very possible or likely that hit btc is one of them but at the same time like just a few people screaming on reddit or twitter isn't really definitive evidence of anything but you know what's the difference that's if if there are issues, those are those are usually kind of technical glitches. But these these few people, these many people screaming on Reddit are not technical issues. It don't seem like technical issues. The money is gone. That's how it seems like. So I I would really urge people to not use CDBTC. Yeah, I mean, definitely use caution and stay away from platforms when you have situations like this developing. But it's, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm not speaking to technical issues, though, Nopara. I'm saying, like, you know, somebody, like, goes on a platform that has a KYC threshold where below this much money, you don't need it. And then they trade and make way more than that. And then they they scream they're getting scammed because the business won't give them their money without KYC. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like that's, yeah, it sucks, but it's like you have to consider things like that when you go on a platform. Like if, if you go over some threshold like that where they require documents, well, like, did you not read the terms of service? Okay, I, I agree with you. It just, this is not the case this time. I believe that's, that's the point. That's my point. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not. I'm just, I don't know, trying to play devil's advocate a little bit. I mean, you're doing yeah. well. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, because, yeah, I mean, you know, there is a lot of that going on. And, uh, you know, Cryptopia, they uh, 
got hacked earlier this year. And I mean, like it took several months for it to kind of unfold to figure out what the actual situation was there. And I mean, like the smart people, as far as trying to like, uh, you know, maintain what they've accumulated, uh, started kind of seeing that and getting out. Yeah, and Cryptopia was the one that when they were in the process of getting hacked, they were putting out tweets saying, oh, we're doing maintenance, like please yeah. stand by. And so now whenever any exchange says we're doing maintenance, everyone's going to think, oh, are they actually talking about them getting hacked and they're not, they don't want to tell us. So great job there, guys, with the language choice. <laughs> yeah, it's yep. uh, something you got to keep your eye on. All right, so where are we oh, On the other hand, EBTC is also anonymous, which is nice if you are running a trustless system, but when you are holding other people's money, then that's when it's completely unacceptable. Already. Yeah. So I guess uh, next up, well, um, sure, absolutely nobody out there is shocked at all, but the VanEck ETF has been delayed. Shocking, right? I mean, it's not like this is uh, standard business or expectations at this what? point. <laughs> but, um, sorry, I lost. I lost truck. I lost truck of ETF is being re refused. I don't know any anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm, but it's kind of like that story about Amazon accepting Bitcoin. It just keeps coming, and you're like, "Yep, that's that's." <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, the uh, China bonds. Oh my god, I'm gonna two weeks. <laughs> two weeks, yeah. All right. Rationale though. So what, what, what's wrong with you? Oh my Do god! You want to start the story or not? <laughs> yeah, if you will shut the fuck up, I will. Okay. The reason this has been delayed again is pretty much the exact same shit as before. So the VanEck proposal is planning on using for their index the um, MVIS Bitcoin OTC index, which is pretty much a proprietary index uh, the means for its calculation are not publicly available and it's all OTC markets for the most part that are going to be feeding this index and now this is kind of a double-edged sword here on the one hand um, you're kind of just blindly trusting how this index has arrived at because pretty much all of these OTC desks don't really have public price feeds and data like you do on public order book exchanges. But at the same time, it's pretty easy to enter into surveillance agreements with these types of trading organizations, which has been one of the big things the SEC continues harping about is, you know, having these surveillance agreements with whoever you're using for the index to guarantee that market manipulation to um, manipulate trades on the actual ETF can't be pulled off. And so what they're doing now is pretty much um, asking for a bunch of comments from people on um, the, the whole situation with the ETF. 
such as the uh, opinions on surveillance agreements with these OTC desks, the um, assertion over the trading volume on futures markets and how that can kind of feed into a more regulated, less uh, manipulated market, um, especially with that, given the fact that the uh, C, the Chicago Futures Exchange shut down um, their futures and how that's going to feed into things. Um, pretty much how a comparison that Vanek made to the uh, break wave dry bulk shipping ETF um, and how that is in their opinion, very comparable to the Bitcoin ETF structure that they're going to set up. Um, pretty much people's opinions on how realistic it might be to try and manipulate the Bitcoin market to trade on the ETF product, and specifically whether or not that type of manipulation will require trading on the futures markets to actually pull off uh, being you know, actual regulated market, as well as the overall size, uh, liquidity, and just the overall nature of uh, market participants in these OTC markets that they're planning on using for their price feed. So really, um, you boil this down into a TLDR, this is coming right back to the same shit that they've been harping on for every ETF proposal. Like this market can be easily manipulated. Is it liquid enough? Uh, there's not enough regulated exchanges in the space. And it's it's really just getting beyond fucking absurd at this point. The, the more we dig into this market, the more we see that it is sizably liquid. Um, like the, um, I believe, Bitwise report a while back showed like the 10 dominant exchanges that aren't actually manipulating volume are almost exactly in sync with each other. So it's showing very strong arbitrage between these different um, exchanges and marketplaces. So you're not going to be able to manipulate those markets unless you manipulate on all of them, which is the whole kind of core of can this market be manipulated. Um, the more places you have to trade to manipulate the overall market, the less you can manipulate it. And it's just like they're completely ignoring at this point the continuing maturation of this market. And they just keep harping on these same points over and over and over again. And it's like, wake the fuck up. Like the, this shit is, is just a horseshit argument and it's a chicken and the egg problem. If you keep pointing out these erroneous problems as a rationalization to delay products like this, then it's going to take longer and longer for the problems that don't actually exist to really be fixed in your mind because you need these types of things like ETFs, like more regulated markets to have the market in a state where you're gonna like stop pretending these problems exist. So it's, it's just a feedback loop of ridiculous nonsense. Yeah, I wonder how many ETF denials have we hit now? I mean, like this all started in March of 2017 with the uh, Winklevoss's ETF. And since then, it seems like we've had at least three or four a year. And yeah, just to uh, count it, this is the first one this year. Let's uh, see how many more delays we can get. 
I've lost track at this point, and I really don't care. <laughs> yeah, because it does always seem to hark back to this idea of market manipulation, and it's just like, what is that? Because, I mean, like, markets, you know, react – are. it's like – of course they're manipulated it's a market it's like if i give you money something's gonna change and that is considered manipulation like i think it's just market forces i'm not even convinced if it matters to the price actually because do you remember the gbtc the barry silbert stuff everyone was so hyped about it just as hyped as the etf but when it launched it ended up adding nothing to the price so it just what's what's going on now wasn't it supposed to be the big big thing when the big banks come into bitcoin i i don't know i i maybe this whole etf thing is just as hyped up for no reasons no i mean that's that's a completely different thing though because the gbtc like all you can do is hold those shares like you like it they cannot legally give you bitcoin for those shares like they're not redeemable so you can't arbitrage that and that that's like the whole fundamental difference between gbtc and something like an etf like you can actually get those bitcoin delivered from an etf like you can arbitrage between all of the spot markets and actually feed that into the overall Bitcoin price. Whereas with the, the GBTC, you can't. Like all, all you can do is buy and sell those shares. Like there's no way to really arbitrage that with the rest of the market. Yeah, and I mean like another factor comes into this is like, do we really need an ETF? I mean, like I can't remember who posted the thread about, you know, just like all these new onboarding platforms as far as like fidelity and e-trade and uh you know things like robin hood and there's there's more coming too and it's just like these things seem much more like they're just going to launch and there's no waiting for approval i mean they're just waiting to make sure they have i guess all their ducks in a row but i mean when that comes i mean why i mean the etf i guess you need it because a lot of people that make large trades would want to participate in that sort of thing so yeah i don't know it's hard to say like why this stuff uh keeps coming up other than one day it probably will cause a huge pump and then we couldn't be laughing about how many delays we faced before we finally got the one etf with a thousand plus shit coins to cause another alt season or something mm -hmm. yeah let's centralize more money there yeah, it's a great idea. Holders won't sell, Nopara. It's not going to be as bad as you think. Because the price will go up. But, you know, when the price go up, the norm is coming, then Bitcoin is not ready and the Bitcoin fees are going to go up to, I don't know, hundreds of dollars. So is, is, is that good? So the price goes up. A lot of people comes in. The price, the fees go to hundreds of dollars and a bunch a lot of money will be centralized in the etf so i mean I, I, okay well, the I price goes up we get richer yeah 
Well, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily that Bitcoin's not ready for it. It's more like the wallets, a lot of the mainstream wallets are not, or the popular ones are not ready for it because like the reason the fee, uh, the average fees went up so high is because most wallets are very dumb with their fee estimation. And so when they see rallies like that and people using stupid wallets that have either a set fee or just really bad estimation, then they end up following each other and it just gets in this vicious cycle where they keep going up and up and up. And so the problem really is just to make good fee estimation in wallets. Bitcoin itself, I think, I don't know if that would have, I don't, I don't think capacity is the issue as much. It's how wallets respond to fee signals. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, that might be a short-term problem, a, a small-scale problem. But the real problem is that you cannot put a bunch of people's transactions into one megabyte. It just, it just, it just small, right? Well, so, so increase uh, the block size then. App hash <laughs> no, op check output hash verify. No far like channel factories, like Lightning. Chalmy yeah, stories. so are, are we ready? Is it ready? Is Bitcoin ready? <laughs> no, it's like, dude, it's, it's never going to be ready. In yeah, the but you cannot argue about something that that is very far in the future. Well, I mean, know? no part. You're, you're trying to argue that, like, market cycles will cause problems. Like, that's always going to happen. It's never going to not be the case. So it's like, why? Why are you worrying about it? Like it, there's literally absolutely nothing you can do about it. Because there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And the sooner the things market cycle, the bull run, the, the, the huge normie influx happen, the, the larger trade-offs we would have to make. Um, no, we that's, that's why. We're not like, that's the thing. No part that's not going to happen. Like you, you act like a bunch of a bunch of grandmas come in and buy twenty dollars in Bitcoin, and all of a sudden we're going to be forking everything. That's not how it works. It doesn't matter if ten million people come in like that; they don't have. Well, I mean, I mean, uh, one could argue that that's exactly how it worked. No, it they won't. they forked no, they forked they forked the Bitcoin cash because so what, look at look at what happened. It got dumped into oblivion because all of the people who forked had almost none of the coins, and we dumped them into the ground because we do. And do you think if Bitcoin would be would have continued its rally, then Bitcoin cash would be as veritas today? No, because people are looking for easy alternatives, and Bitcoin is like, not. No like you're not, you're not thinking rationally. It doesn't matter because that system, that like, they will fork off and it will die. They will fork off again and it will die. That will happen until people realize that that just doesn't work. Oh well, there's nothing you can do about it. Who cares? Also, keep in mind, there would only be congestion on the network if people are, when they go and buy the Bitcoin, if they're actually moving it as an on-chain transaction instead of what most people do, which is they send fiat to the exchange, it gives them some Bitcoin, but obviously the exchange still holds the Bitcoin and they haven't moved it anywhere. It's just a number in their database. 
So unless people have wizened up to the fact that they shouldn't be keeping their Bitcoin on an exchange, that doesn't contribute very much to transaction congestion on the network. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. That's what I'm saying that instead of solutions, instead of, instead of looking for small compromises, good compromises, we are looking for bad trade-offs, which is let's just transact inside Coinbase because no, that's the not. only thing that works right now and cheap enough. People are going to do that no matter what, Nopar. Like, that's not like Bitcoin making a trade off. That's some normal person making a trade off. That has nothing to do with the trade offs Bitcoin is making. Well, there is a point when you would consider something like that. Like, like what, what transaction fee does it have to be? Right? Like $10, $100, $1,000. When, when do you start using some? some some blue wallet lightning where it's custodial like you know well that's where it's like uh i mean yeah that's where that could be a problem i mean hopefully we'll have more non-custodial solutions set up by that point in time but i mean for sure it's like you know this is like a free market people are free to do with whatever they want and some of these people that do invest early on like that with those FOMO investments. It's like uh, they didn't factor in the idea that whenever that happens, the network's going to get congested. And if they try to send it out to their cold storage, they might be wrecking their position. Whereas somebody that was, knows better would probably either have things lined up beforehand or you know, know another route around the problem. And the same goes with wallets as far as uh, you know, if they have dumb fee setups and stuff like that. And uh, you know, whenever that congestion does happen, you'll see customers start to move over, smart customers move over to wallets that can uh, handle that sort of problem. And that's where markets learn. It takes people losing value and uh, everybody kind of getting put in a crunch and supposedly the market will figure it out. Alrighty, on to the next one. So this is something been a long time coming, but Manfred uh, Kerr, the lead of BISC, uh, has officially stepped down. BISC is now effectively completely ran and operated by the DAO. So people who are shareholders in the DAO or own tokens um, can earn this for development and then participate in the voting process for how the overall project is directed. And Manfred has completely removed himself now. He, he was originally planning on slowly kind of phasing out his involvement with the project, but in dealing with a chargeback scammer um, right after the DAO was launched and just the, the stress and overall time in dealing with that, he's decided that he just needs to cut ties and walk away or he's going to wind up just perpetually delaying his separation from the project. And, you know, ultimately, I think this is a really good thing because the, the, the platform itself is decentralized. People operating peer-to-peer -peer software. 
like the the entire actual operation of the the trade is is decentralized and so really this was the final step in, in the road here is to actually take development of the project itself and decentralize that and if this can continue operating and moving forward in this manner i think this is going to be a huge thing in this space i mean it's already very widely used but if this type of development model can really succeed in the long term then this can really help address the choke point that is integrating bitcoin and fiat at a kind of interaction point and so so far um i guess he kind of set up a list in his announcement of outstanding things um to be developed some new protection tools against chargeback scammers, um, a new trading protocol that would kind of remove arbitrators and use direct communication and mediators instead, um, a potential idea for off-chain trading protocols, a decentralized contract for difference, which would be pretty interesting. That allows people who are just speculatively trading to actually come in and have a product built for them. Um, automated trading APIs, automated altcoin trading, um, a transaction proof um, system for Monero traders, SegWit support, uh, hardware wallet integration, and I think most importantly, um, a deterministic build setup so that as a, a totally decentralized project, people can actually verify that the binary is being distributed. And so I think it's, a really positive step forward and it's going to be interesting to see you know at what kind of pace and how smoothly like these new features really get worked into the project over time and i hope that they do well because i think this is a very valuable project in the ecosystem yeah man everybody's been trying to figure out uh, how exactly to do this decentralized exchange correctly and i mean like you're saying i mean man we're supposed to step away a while back but i mean uh you know better to do it slow and correctly than you know just uh have it be i don't know quickly change over and uh everything could kind of just lose its development i mean the bis growth calls have been going on for a long time now and uh i see them posting that regularly and as time goes on i'm sure uh you know as long as this uh project keeps uh working out the way it's planned their uh volume will continue to rise and yeah hopefully we can find a uh suitable model to actually you know do this thing yeah i hope the best too but looking at their github I I can see Manfred having the overwhelming majority majority of the commits and and the overwhelming majority of the commits lately. Uh, so I don't know, man. It doesn't look good. Yeah, it doesn't sound good, but I don't know. It's the best we've got right now, as far as like I like their client model where it's you know it's a client instead of a uh, web interface and i mean <laughs> you know that's one aspect but i mean for sure the idea of just getting people to stay involved through a vested interest of you know using the token for trading and development it's a it's a hard model that needs to be put to the test so uh yeah it's we'll see how it goes Wait, so is he not going to be involved in development at all anymore? Or is he just not 
he's going to be less involved in terms of like a management of the project perspective. He wanted to start less and less involved, but he's pretty much he didn't turn out. Like he, he's pretty much doing nothing at this point, except, you know, maybe helping a little bit or answering questions and some back end stuff like operating a node for stuff, but he, he's pretty much completely stepping away other than that. All right, man. Well, yeah, I'm wishing the best. I'm hoping for the best. So yeah, let's, uh, let's see how biscuit balls, maybe, uh, you know, people out there go out there and, uh, help out with the development or help out with the volume, however you can. And, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's go back into some more, uh, some more craziness. What's going on with this, uh, tether situation, man. We got to always update about this. Yay. My favorite topic. So there was a hearing between the tether and finex counselor and representatives from the office of the attorney general and there is both in the show notes when i put them up afterwards the full transcript as well as a, a bit finexed um lunatic who took a few quotes and wildly distorted the context of them um there is a note um next to that link for the bias involved as well as a ruling from the judge um after the the court appearance but pretty much the 50 page transcript boils down to contention over the limitations of tether funds and how they can be used and the language involved in what the office of the attorney general wanted as well as the demand for document produ production and overall jurisdiction and so pretty much the core of the issue with the language over restriction of tether funds uh, boiled down to the attorney general uh, attempting to insert the the language um, I went over when we covered this regarding reserve funds and the fact that tether does not have segregated funds in the manner of like specifically marking this as backing tether this as operational funds for staff and so on and the restriction of only being able to hold um, cash or cash equivalents. And so this kind of boils into the, the issue of fungibility with cash and the fact that they, they simply track net amounts, outstanding liabilities, um, their funds, and then mark profit for operations, um, paying their staff and so on. And also the fact that they have branched out into other investments um, to kind of back things besides just cash and cash equivalents, obviously including the, the line of credit to Bitfinex that um, was effectively really kind of dealt with in the initial exchange offering that they held and privately raised around a billion dollars worth of Tether from. But one of the key things that people have been distorting wildly out of context out of this transcript is a statement by the tether attorney that they have invested in bitcoin and here is where this is distorted wildly out of context all of the bitfinex retards 
are pretty much out there screaming that there are massive amounts of Bitcoin backing Tether with the wild price fluctuations. And therefore, the printing money out of thin air argument is true. Well, um, two things to show why this is complete and utter nonsense. One, we've seen bank attestations showing all of the money in fiat backing Tether minus the entire issue with crypto capital, which is, again, completely dealt with by the initial exchange offering, moving all of that liability to Bitfinex and away from Tether. But also, the reason he made this statement and the whole point he was trying to make in the context of the court argument was that they need small amounts of Bitcoin to pay for transaction fees to move tethers on the Bitcoin blockchain. And the overall amount of tether that they had invested in to accomplish this was something like 0 0.075 BTC. So in other words, literally a few hundred dollars. And the whole point that he was trying to make was that with the attorney general's language and how she was trying to structure the injunction, they would not be allowed to do that because it's tether funds and that would be completely restricted to cash and cash equivalents, which would mean they would literally be unable to hold the amount of Bitcoin necessary to process tether transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain because the fees have to be paid in Bitcoin. Duh. Now, the other point of contention is since the attorney general moved to, to kind of push this all to court and demand the insane open-ended injunction that Finex would have to actively bring to an end, um, Finex has decided to fight in court that they have no jurisdiction period over any of this because the basis for their arguing of jurisdiction is the commission of securities fraud. So the Finex and Tether attorneys moved for a motion to dismiss based on the fact that the attorney general does not have any jurisdiction in this matter, period, and there is no merit to the charges of securities fraud. And so their, their stance pretty much right now is that they are no longer producing any documents for the attorney general's office unless compelled to by court order, in which case they will comply with any orders that the judge hits them with. Now, the judge, after this hearing, has pretty much ordered the petitioner, the attorney general's office, um, to show cause before the court why the entire thing should not be dismissed and thrown out and why um, he should not stay the demands for document production. So pretty much right now, um, the attorney general has to file by July 8th all of their arguments on this um, matter. And Finex and Tether have until July 22nd to respond to the attorney general's filing. But right now, the judge has pretty much put all of the onus on the office of the attorney general to 
come up with an argument as to why he should not just throw this entire case out. And so at this point, if the attorney general um, is unable to make a convincing argument to the judge, it's looking like this entire case will pretty much be dismissed. Done. Well, that would cause Bitfinex and uh, Twitter to erupt a little bit, but hey, I mean, you know, this is, let's talk about earlier, you get put into a crunch and you find a solution and you work your way out on the other side or you don't. And I mean, like with what Tether and Bitfinex or iFinex has been doing, I mean, yeah, it looks like, uh, I mean, if this, yeah, if this does get dropped, I mean, it'll put them in a good position as far as like they made it on the other side of all this uh, adversity. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those arguments that I'm, you know, we'll keep bringing it up. I was arguing with somebody about it earlier today, not arguing, but just discussing it earlier today. It's always a topic of discussion as far as, well, you know, everybody wants to create their own other stable coin and build up some sort of network of trust. And, you know, how do you do that? And, you know, well, what's our best example to look at and tethers it? Yeah, but it just, it goes to show that, you know, no matter what, no matter what the facts are, no matter any issues that are solved and dealt with, there are always going to be people pretty much just outright lying and inventing nonsense and distorting everything that they can get their hands on to push a narrative. And Really, I just want this particular instance of this to be done with so I can stop talking about it until the next time because I am really getting sick of having to dig through like 100 pages of documents to actually have something factual to say instead of just deranged, retarded nonsense. Yeah, they're going to say that AG was bought off. All right, so Janine, you want to update us on what's going on with some IRS guidelines? Yeah, so if you remember in episode 172, we talked about a letter that some members of Congress, primarily Representative Emmer, sent to the IRS in April requesting that the IRS create clear guidelines about how Bitcoin and cryptocurrency users in the United States or persons subject to the U.S. tax system should go about paying off the red, white, and blue mafia. And on March or on May 21st, the IRS commissioner, Charles P. Reddig, responded to the letter saying that he, quote, shares your belief that taxpayers deserve clarity on basic issues related to the taxation of virtual currency transactions and have made it a priority of the IRS to issue guidance. We have been considering these issues and intend to publish guidance addressing these and other issues soon. Don't know what soon means, um, but yeah, so that was, ju I just wanted to do an update on that because they did respond to the letter and hopefully they, of course, the whole financial system in the U.S. is not designed to give clear guidance on anything related to taxes because literally the U.S. government is constantly lobbied by these so-called like, you know, tax filing helper organizations that make a lot of money off of the fact that the tax system makes no sense and is very, very complex. So the guidelines will probably not be as clear as they should be, but they may be just a bit clearer so that maybe you don't get screwed every year when you're trying to, you know, navigate the maze and figure out how you, you know, 
ways that you can not go to jail for being a completely normal person. So expect the guidelines right after the next uh, bull market really kicks off and everybody has a shit ton of liabilities they have no idea how to calculate. That, that sounds like soon to me. Sound, sound about right, guys? Yep. Yeah, that could be the case. I mean, like I've seen some Twitter discussions about rumblings of new guidelines being handed down and guidance and stuff. But uh, yeah, that, that'll probably be the case. It might take until then. All right, so that is just a quick update. Let's talk about uh, what could have been that guidance discussion I was seeing on Twitter. <clears throat> All right, guys, you know I'm not from the financial sector. And uh, when we first covered the FATF proposed guidelines on episode 134, I mocked their attempt to regulate the space, thinking they were just another agency out there that would fall flat on their face. However, seeing the resulting change in best practices of exchange and exchanges in crypto companies since those guidelines were handed down, it's obvious I shouldn't have taken them so lightly. Now, the FATF is back in the news as they are set to finalize international standards for crypto firms next month. The amount of erroneous record keeping instituted in 2018 from the FATF has caused lots of companies to pivot to either new geographical areas or change their regulatory position in business models. Well, it looks like that amount of erroneous records is set to increase. It appears the major change in guidance we'll see this year will be the addition of the travel rule from tra traditional finance ported over to the cryptocurrency industry. Now, FinCEN defines the travel rule as a requirement for all financial institutions to pass on certain information to the next financial institution in certain fund transmittals involving more than one financial institution. All right, so this would essentially require all exchanges to share customer information to where they could more easily track outputs and this was even discussed in the recent FinCEN guidance put out earlier this month. Paragraph 7B states, quote, countries should ensure that the originating virtual asset service provider obtain and hold required and accurate sender information and required recipient information on virtual asset transfers. Submit the above information to beneficiary virtual asset service providers and make it available on request to appropriate authorities, close quote. Coindesk reports that two to 300 officials from top exchanges and companies in the industry were in Vienna on May 6th and 7th to hear about these new guidelines. It sounded like the FATF isn't slowing down and we'll soon see the full breadth and scope of the new guidance. U.S. Treasury Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, Seigel Mandekler, said, quote, We anticipate that in June the FATF will adopt a final version of its interpretive note along with updated guidance to further assist countries and industry with their with their obligations, close quote. One U.S. exchange operator at the event said, quote, we'll end up bothering good customers and asking them for information we can't verify, close quote. An exchange sending crypto on a customer's behalf, again, quote, sorry, there's a lot of quotes in here at this point. So an exchange sending crypto on a customer's behalf, quote, does not know any certain with any certainty who the destination address is owned by, as there is no register of such address, addresses and new addresses can be created at any time, close quote. And then they go on to discuss how output identity could be disconnected with a non-custodial wallet entering the equation, and that these guidelines will have a reverse effect by pushing people into more peer-to-peer -peer transfers via non-custodial wallets. Still, we won't really know how this shakes out until the new regulations are released 
and we actually start to see the companies attempting to institute them. It's likely we'll see a grace period for the industry to fall in line with the new guidance, but we could also see another pivot session for companies rearranging their infrastructure to maneuver around these regulations. It's going to be a real fight going forward. The FATF does consist of the most important economies in the current construct of global macroeconomic markets, but it's the entire globe and there are a lot of areas not represented at all in the current construct. So it should be an interesting series of some geographical areas falling in line and some stepping up their advancement toward independence of this system. So <clears throat> what do you guys think about the potential of the travel rule coming into cryptocurrency? I think that well, it's really, sorry, but um, yeah, it's, it's, go ahead. it's, it's going to be a big clusterfuck because like you, you can say all you want about the FATF being on board, but what happens when this really gets into the local jurisdictions and they start looking at the dampening effect this could have on growth in this ecosystem in their countries like you start looking at the implications of this as far as like local laws and rights. And I, I think that there'll be a hard push for this beyond a doubt, but I think things will get very sticky once something is solidified by the FATF and actually starts getting to the point of individual countries having to implement and enforce these types of things. Janine, you had a comment too? Yeah, I mean, I like I agree with the, you know, warning that cryptocurrency users, if they're using an exchange, they can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that any address that they're sending to belongs to the person that they think it belongs to, especially if, you know, a lot of people in the space pay people that they don't know their real names half the time. So, yeah, I don't see that going over very well. But again, another reason to not use custodial exchange that will be subjected to this. Yeah, I think it is going to be interesting going forward for sure. You know, uh, <laughs> that, like you're saying, that's going to be a mess in itself whenever they start saying, oh, this went to John Doe, the third. But um, also, for sure, it's just uh, going to be a fight where, you know, we'll see real geographical areas picking their position. And, uh, you know, that position will reflect... Uh, you know, I guess, uh, hard. I mean, I guess it's just going to reflect where they stand in this current situation and how they want to stand in the future. I mean, um, some will probably kowtow and just fall right in line where some are really going to have to question where they stand now and where they want to be in the future. And they might take on the risk to advance their placement. I think especially in the United States, there will be a lot of people really pushing against this i mean like this it's kind of fucking outrageous it's yeah you, like you you look at the same things with cash why why are there no pushes like this for cash like why why do you not have to legally register and, and get a receipt or something or proof whenever you hand cash to somebody it, it's it's a ridiculously absurd double standard yeah well like that u.s senator said the other day we need 
U.S. dollars because that's our weapon to institute sanctions on countries. I mean, they're getting really bold about it. I kind of see the United States maybe fracturing a little bit based on, you know, whether or not heavy regulations do get handed down to where, yeah, there'd probably be some states that would be happy to fall in line like New York or California or something like that, where you got states like Wyoming and Colorado that aren't going to be so happy about that. So, I mean, it could, yeah, get messy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's not going to be as simple as, as this is being painted right now. Yeah. All right. Nopar, you want to take us into some uh, stuff going on as far as a certain geographical area having trouble with their mixing service? Yes. It's a very quick comment that regarding the U.S. senator, the, the real problem is not what he said, but that he, he gets it. That's exactly what we are doing. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, so Big, Big Best Mixer IO has been shut down uh, by law enforcement. And this was quite a big news because I'm not sure if, if Best Mixer IO was the, the, the largest one, but definitely it was the best because, you know, it's the best mixer. Okay, so, but it was on the deep.web, you know, that has been our also shut down, which was the starting page of the darknet. So, so this best mixer IO was, was advertised there as the, the recommended way of mixing. So, so this might have been the largest one. I, I don't know. And it has been shut down by law enforcement for, interesting reasons but before i go into the reasons i think it's i think it, it's it's not i actually don't mind it but i mind it because yeah. <laughs> because yeah sure they they went after some some privacy providing service but on the other hand, I had actually some encounter with them uh, personally, and oh man, this, these these guys are total scammers. Uh, yeah, it's it's it. They they are. If if they don't shut this thing down, then they are gonna run away with the money. <laughs> I'm 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 sure about that. They were just so so shady. Anyway, uh, so what what happened here? Uh, they they sized their servers and they didn't arrest anyone. As you guys might have seen, that uh, people said that oh they didn't arrest anyone because 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 why would they arrest anyone? I, I but I think the reason or my speculation is that the reason they didn't arrest anyone was just simply because they didn't find them because they were anonymous and they just found the server so there you go and um, what what happened here is that they had interesting statistics they had 200 million annual turnover 25000 bitcoins profit per month is 600000 uh dollar or 25 bitcoins uh top three customers us 
Germany, Netherlands. Actually, not sure about this Netherlands thing. Maybe it was because just put there because Netherlands people were were uh, were after the the were, were the investigators and oh right we are inside our territory. So anyway, uh, before before. Oh yes, w one very important thing is that uh, the Dutch FIOD has gathered information on all the participants uh, on all the interactions on this platform in the last past year. This includes IP addresses, transaction details, Bitcoin addresses and chat messages. This information will now be analyzed by the FIOD in cooperation with the Europol and the intelligence packages will be shown. To, 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 to. The point is that what, what the heck they were what they, they were logging or they were logging IP addresses and you know what I mean? Like how they gain this information that no one actually logs that much information a year back or I don't know. Uh, do you have do you have any theory about it? Either they were logging all of that, which is shady as fuck, or law enforcement compromised their system that long ago and they were logging it. Those are the only two explanations. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay, so the chief investigator. John Fokker, the head of cyber investigations of McAfee, the advanced threat research, which I understood that he was the chief investigator or, or, or whoever, the, the leading guy who was going after, after them, said that mixing bitcoins that are obtained legally is not a crime. Other than the mathematical exercise, there is no real benefit to it. The legality changes when a mixing service advertises itself as a success method to avoid various anti-money laundering policies via anonymity. This is actively offering a money laundering service. So I think this is really interesting here because finally, someone who is who's like has every reason to to not admit it admits it that mixing bitcoins are obtained legally is not a crime so you know what i mean it's 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 actually quite encouraging on the other hand i think it's really interesting how the law works like doesn't matter what you're doing if what matters is just how you're advertising what you're doing. I don't know, it's kind of stupid. What also, do you think I, about this, guys? I think it's one, I, I obviously agree with that. But I also think, I think it was Bitcoin error log. Um, John Carvello made a good point in response to this somewhere on Twitter. Is mixing or coin joins and things like that, it's not money laundering. Because like money laundering is making money look clean. It's, it's like taking the money you made selling drugs and convincing somebody you made it 
running a laundromat. Coin joins and mixing doesn't do that. It just obscures where it came from. It doesn't take an illegal source of that money and then create a legal one. It just mixes it and makes it hard for you to see where it came from. Like So it's really an absurd argument to say that mixing is money laundering because it doesn't do what money laundering, excuse me, it doesn't do what money laundering is supposed to do. You see, the both the philosophical, the theoretical, the practical arguments for Bitcoin mixing is is very very strong. It just you know when you are trying to to force your your views on on people by calling this victim mentality that that think about the children and stuff like that 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 you are trying to force your propaganda on people that's that's when what what actually i don't even know if it rules the the current establishment but certainly pretty strongly present this notion of 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 trying to you know like like hiding anything is just just it's almost like a crime but the real equivalent to it is that uh, if imagine a messaging service where you can only message people if everyone else in the world can see it that's crazy you don't want to use that messaging service that's the same exact same thing with money that imagine money that everyone else can see the transaction that you are sending to people that's crazy you don't want to use that money so anyway there are very strong arguments but what's interesting to me is even those who are trying to push their propaganda and justification on 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 people admit that it's bitcoin mixing is not a crime so yeah well yeah just like uh airlog and uh shinobi are saying i mean it certainly doesn't fit the definition of traditional definition of money laundering i mean you would have to kind of reassign that definition but yeah like uh i've had some people reach out to me asking about it and I mean, like you're saying, I mean, they were advertised on deep dot web. And I mean, like that little bit of a problem is enough to where maybe these uh, officials, corrupt or not, thought it was enough to where they could bring them to a court. And uh, yeah, maybe they definitely ran off with their money. I mean, we've seen a history of that with the uh, Silk Road coins and DEA agents and the way that all played out. So that's not far off from, you know, realities of the past. So I mean, and like I, like you're also saying, and I was talking about, is like uh, it could have been, like you're saying, I mean, the territory could have some, for some reason, people of the Netherlands were like, well, we don't like the idea of this thing being here, which that doesn't seem plausible reality. But I mean, yeah, it seems like it was just like a little misstep in uh, their marketing and it put them in, uh, you know, neon in a gray environment. It's just like, you know, let's uh, grab this guy and bring him somewhere because it's like he's flashy and, you know, we can make a case here. You know what? What it reminded me that, do you remember Amir Taki and Dark Wallet? These these guys were advertising Dark Wallet. Well, even the name Dark Wallet, but not just that, but they put up YouTube videos that 
Bitcoin money laundering, how to do that and things like that. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so crazy in a way that, well, that's exactly what you should not do. Uh, otherwise you are safe, it seems. Yep. I mean, those FT, you know, well, blah, the FinCEN guidelines, I think, are really healthy clarity for everything, as much as some of them are ridiculous arguments. Right. We are collecting these these clues that the FinCEN guideline and this, this, this John Fokker's lead investigators, uh, what he's saying that, uh, I mean, I hope we never have to use it, but, you know, just in case. Yeah, well, like you're saying, I mean, there's been some legal, yeah, there's been guidance put out and, you know, can look through that. But also, like you're saying, somebody's saying it's just, it's not le illegal. And I mean, there's, uh, there's definitely things that, you know, we can learn from this situation. I mean, especially yourself and uh, all the guys over there. All right. What's the next story? Janine, you're up. Yeah, so I've, for, you know, the last year and a half or so, I've been pretty irked at the standards for privacy at cryptocurrency conferences. Um, so far, from what I've seen, the Hackers Congress in Prague has been the only one which advises to not photograph people without their consent, although that they don't even have that as an explicit policy. Their, their code of conduct is literally just a link to the non-aggression principle. Um, basically still the Chaos Communication Congress leads in this area because they have an explicit policy um, on their website every year that says, you know, do not photograph people without their consent, do not take crowd or do not take crowd photographs because, you know, unless you're going around asking all of those people if it's okay, don't do that unless it's from the back. Um, and if you followed me on Twitter since last summer, that was when I took issue in particular with the Zcash conference, um, which I think was in Toronto, and they had photographers taking pictures of people without asking. I asked them directly, like, did you ask for consent? And he gave me a shrug emoji. And um, and even worse, if you suspected that your photo had been taken and didn't want it published, you had to email them after the fact. And they ended up publishing a bunch of photos where they couldn't say that they'd actually gotten consent for that. And that I especially for a privacy conference, I find that to be a low standard, um, especially for one, you know, like we shouldn't be promoting that, especially in Bitcoin, because, you know, I, like I've always hated the idea that everywhere I go, someone would not only recognize me, but they would know that I have Bitcoin and I don't want to be targeted in that way. So it's now almost, almost a year later and Zcash, I don't think they've fixed that. Um, there's also the issue of, you know, when you're signing up for these events um, and buying tickets, what kinds of information do they get from you and who do they give it to? And in the last week, the Bitcoin 2019 conference, which is organized by BTC Media um, and will take place in San Francisco next month, was found to be sharing participant data with their sponsors. And their privacy policy says that they collect the following name, title, name of your organization, email address, postal address, country where your organization or you are based, profession, job title, 
phone number and fax number. Now, some of those things in the list, obviously not everyone is going to give that over, but that is something they could collect um, in the sign-up and ticket purchasing process. And in the section of their privacy policy where they talk about sharing data with their sponsors, they only list title, first and last name, organization, and location. Um, it's not clear if that's a short list of what they share, like compared to the longer list of stuff that they actually collect, or if they only offer a small subset of that data. But anyway, not only are they sharing it, but um, according to a tweet by Whale Panda, they're actually selling it as part of their sponsorship packages that obviously sponsors can buy um, in order to fund the event. And publicly, when I looked at their, their partners page, which lists all of their sponsors and media partners and things like that, one of their sponsors is the blockchain analysis company Elliptic. And another one is a blockchain KYCML company called NetKey. And I don't see them including financial data specifically in the list of things they collect, but I'm not going to completely rule that out at this point as something they could possibly be sharing with sponsors. Um, I'm planning to actually ask them after the show if they do that. Um, but presumably these two companies do not have access or they shouldn't have access to ticketing data but it would be, if they are getting it, it would be a great data trove for them because if you paid with Bitcoin, it they would be able to link your name, employer, and physical address with the transaction history of the coins that you sent them. And it just bothers me that blockchain analytics companies are sponsoring this conference at all. But then um, on May 21st, they, uh, due to a number of people, you know, being upset with the fact that they were selling their attendees data, they updated their privacy policy to allow you to opt out of sharing this information with sponsors by um, sending an email to btcmedia.org. And they also say that they allow anonymous attendees. So apparently you're not forced to enter this personal information. But even then, I don't think that this is sufficient. I think it's good that they responded to feedback, but I don't think that conferences should be selling personal information when their attendees are paying for the conference. Like if it's a free thing, you know, that's a free fall. There's a whole bunch of, you know, nefarious people who hold free events and they, you know, collect information about people who attend it. But when you're paying for the conference, you should not be surveilled and have your personal information sold to sponsors as part of that package that that's kind of gross and um, the one good thing about the privacy policy is that they say if you do not want your image or voice recorded or published for any compelling and legitimate reason I mean you shouldn't have to provide a compelling or legitimate reason you should just say I don't want to be recorded and that should be enough but they say please let the conference organizers know when you check in at the event um, whether they will actually honor that properly is to be seen. Um, but yeah, so that, that kind of, eh, that's disappointing. I, I wasn't planning to go anyway because it's too far away, but yeah. Um, another service that was red flagged for me, again, in a similar way, was Coinbase's Earn program because I saw a tweet from a guy named Bruno Squirk. Not sure how to pronounce the last name. Um, who is responding to some of the commentary around this Bitcoin 2019 conference by saying that, quote, many conferences do this. I have bought copious amounts of personal data from Coindesk's consensus 
as well as from the Coinbase Earn program. And it just happened that on May 21st, the electric coin company Twitter account, formerly known as the Zcash company, tweeted that their earned Zcash campaign was a success because, quote, 58% are still holding earned Zcash, 4.7% have purchased more. And, quote, it seems Coinbase customers increasingly recognize the importance of financial privacy, which is a really ironic thing to say in a tweet where you make it very obvious that you are tracking what people are doing with their Zcash. But whatever. So um, I replied to that thread asking what kinds of personal information they were collecting as part of this EARN program. Um, and Bruno actually responded that he was given everything you have in earn.com. Um, and he was focusing on Ethereum, but I assume it applies to Bitcoin. He said Ethereum address, name, social profile, all the emails you gave um, to various crypto projects that invited you, in some cases, phone numbers. And so then I went and checked Earn's privacy policy on their website. And it's one of those really great privacy policies that uses like legally tricky language where they say, we do not sell exchange transfer or give your personal information to any other company or individual for any reason, except as set forth below. And then there's like five or six points of like how they actually do share, uh, sell, exchange, transfer, blah, 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 your personal information. It's really funny. Like that's something that a lot of Silicon Valley companies do that they'll start off their paragraph saying, we do not do this. And so people will read that sentence and like, oh, it's okay, they don't do it. But then you don't read the rest of the paragraph where they say exactly how they actually do do it. And it's like, oh, you basically do it. And your circumstances where you make an exception are basically everything. <laughs> so in this case, they say that they share personal information with companies or individuals that we have your, when we have your consent to do so. And I actually asked because I noticed that Adam Back and Elizabeth Stark have profiles on Earn. And so I asked them if they were aware of this and they didn't respond. I don't know if they will. Um, but then they say, we may provide personal information to our trusted services, trusted services providers to assist us in providing services to you and only based on our instructions and in adherence to this policy and applicable confidentiality and security measures, blah, blah, blah. And obviously merger acquisition, um, and of course, law enforcement, other third parties that we are compelled to comply with, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to bring this up, not because I'm really surprised by it. I mean, like any, any website that basically runs its business on the basis that you earn Bitcoin, you like you pay these people with profiles to read your emails, like they're going to be selling data about you. That's basically what they're business is. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me, but what I am surprised about is that so many people in Bitcoin have signed up to this earned service, especially when it's very obvious that your personal and financial data is not only accessible to Coinbase, but it's being sold to any random person with enough money and interest to buy it, uh, according to Bruno. So yeah, I'm kind of interested to know whether they are going to be more transparent about that. And I think Bruno actually runs a service where he shows which services sell personal data that they collect from you. Um, so I'll have to check back in on that. But yeah, I'm not very happy about the conference stuff. And I wish conferences in general would do a better job of respecting people's wish to not be photographed, especially considering the circumstances.
Yeah, and it shouldn't take a compelling reason to do so. I mean, like that is upsetting that, uh, you know, because I've been watching the Bitcoin conference 2019, you know, announcing their list of speakers and, you know, what else is going to be going on there. And it looks really interesting and looks like it'll be, you know, surrounding a lot of discussion of Bitcoin and not this uh, blockchain you know, craziness that goes on at some of these events. And uh, yeah, that's really upsetting to hear that they took that approach. Um, you think that these companies that work in this space are people setting up conferences. Anybody, you know, setting up something for this space should have, you know, some sort of on hand uh, privacy expert to discuss uh, how exactly they should market these uh to this crowd and what exactly they should be doing to uh, make sure that it's not going to be an experience that they're going to turn back and say, I won't do that again. And I mean, especially, you know, it's just, it seems like they're not understanding that they're really putting people's lives at risk. If they do have something where their outputs are tracked back and, you know, they start to realize like someone's got a lot of Bitcoin and they know where they're going to be. And it's, it's, yeah, it's weird, but I mean, uh, luckily, I mean, I'm, I'm working with some conference organizers here locally just because they really are like they're they came to me because they want it to be a privacy centric conference. So, like, I mean, I'm kind of tasked with uh, helping them, you know, figure out how to do that. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm going to check into this uh, chaos communication conference and see what their standards are, because uh, you, you were saying those guys sort of are at the top of the food chain when it comes to that. Yeah, they're extremely strict. Like if, if you take a photo of a crowd and it's not from the back and you can identify people in the photo, you will get like conference organizers and attendees tweeting at you saying, please take down this photo because you didn't get permission. Yeah, I uh, have to check into that because I want to set this thing up for them well to where, you know, we'll have people that are attendees who wouldn't normally go to a conference, but want to come to the, this conference because they can and they can do it comfortably. Yeah, I've actually, because there's been so many incidents like this where it's like, oh, that's really not good. I've actually been thinking of writing a um something that they could add as if they had, whether they have a code of conduct already or not, it would be something that they could add as like a policy of whether you can photograph people. Because I think there's, there's a lot of different el elements involved. There's the attendees who are taking photos of themselves and other people, but then the conference itself also usually hires photographers who are taking pictures. And so it like, you, you not only have to have a policy of saying like you have to ask people's consent before you take photos, blah, blah, blah. But you also have to communicate that to all of the paid photographers that you've hired that they're not allowed to take photos without asking. And then you also have to create the expectation among attendees that that's you're not allowed to do that unless you ask. And I feel like a lot of like it's there's many people involved, but I think it's a simple, it's a lot more simple than people make it out to be. And I'm, I'm surprised that more conferences don't do that because there's obviously a lot of people who do want to attend anonymously um, and they don't want to have their photo taken all the time. Yeah, you should definitely do that. It would it'd probably help out a lot of people sort of see like, uh, yeah, like, why don't we do this or, you know, on both sides of the spectrum there. So yeah, like uh, hopefully we can start seeing some more conferences doing that sort of thing. 
All right, where are we at in the lineup? Looks like Nopar, you're up on some interviews. Yeah, it's me. Just a quick personal story. Uh, there was a guy who sent me a message that that he's a researcher and uh, he he's looking into Ethereum mixing, <laughs> and it turned out that he's Hungarian and he's living a two minutes walk from where I live right now. And uh, he's gonna talk in the Breaking Bitcoin uh, conference, and he's gonna have a talk there. But anyway, uh, he we met in real life. Istvan Andras Heres, that's his name. Uh, check out his talk on Breaking Bitcoin. We met, and and he explained me how hard it is to do anything privacy related in Ethereum because of the balance model, right? Bitcoin uses the UTXO model and Ethereum uses balance model, which is a, which is a compromise on privacy for, for uh, simplicity. Uh, that's, that's the only reason why they use the balance model. So anyway, uh, the thing is that the mixing thing that they are proposing can be applied to Bitcoin or something like that but they didn't quite figure out how to apply it yet. And the interesting thing is that uh, they, they came up with some, 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 some strangeness, which, which might be a really good building block in the future. Uh, and that's what I call inter-exchange batching, but it's really just a building block without a name yet. Uh, and it's, Something like, as I understood, and I won't explain how it works because I don't know, but you will be able to see from the paper that will they come out. But I know how to how it behaves. I don't know how it works, but I know how it behaves. So I just just tell you. And if you're interested, then then look for Istvan Andras paper in the future. Something like you put with multiple people, like with multiple exchanges money into one key and that one key you can always withdraw or if anyone if everyone signs who put the money there then a transaction happens now this is really interesting because you can always withdraw your part and if everyone signs then it looks like it's a shared wallet that you are sending from and this this is what i said oh but this could be used for inter exchange batching but then i realized this is stupid because that makes no sense so exchanges uh so th th there is no benefit right because the number of outputs what really matters so the number of withdrawals and not the number of uh, exchanges put in that that just doesn't give an, uh, any uh, things anyway this this is a quick tool if you are interested i think in the future we might be able to build on it something or not let's see so any comments on this or move on to the next i'd have to see really how it works <clears throat> to really kind of fucking get any insight on it because it's like I I see in the show notes you said like inter exchange batching uh, plus breaking Bitcoin and Lightning Network talk. 
but I feel like all of the stuff people are trying to do with lightning and exchanges, it's it's just not going to work and it's not economically scalable in the long term. Yes, yeah, so it's a different thing. He's going to give a lightning talk on the breaking Bitcoin. I just wanted to mention that because that's how you can uh, check him out. This Ethereum mixing protocol paper, it is coming out uh, later. And then the how to how you apply it to Bitcoin or how you generalize it, take it out to have a tool. That's the thing that I just explained. And the inter-exchange batching, what I figured out, oh, we could use it for inter-exchange batching because exchanges could put money into one wallet, one address, and paying out, and no one would know which exchange the money is coming from except the customer. But, Dude. yeah. That sounds awesome, man. I mean, like, I'm just listening to you talking. I know a bunch of Ethereum developers, and we discuss a lot of times about, like, what is the use case at all, if anything, for these networks. And, I mean, this is where it's like... Oh, no, this is for Bitcoin. What, he was developing for Ethereum, and then he decided to create this mixing protocol for Bitcoin? He's, he's researching a mixing protocol paper to Ethereum, and uh, I said, I don't care. Show me how to use it in Bitcoin. <laughs> well, that's what that's I'm saying. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like something over there that gets uh, developed. I mean, like, you know, yeah, we can port it over to Bitcoin, but it's like, you know, that mind over there on that network, uh, you know, found something out. I mean, you know, would have liked to have had them developing this stuff straight into Bitcoin? Sure. But I mean, uh, that's where you know the efficiency gain comes from that's where it comes from and um that's where i always think of these things it's just like they're experiments you know it's like a it's like a particle accelerator and the amount of collisions you have to have to find something useful but i mean like once you find something you know hey like you're saying i mean if we could put exchange outputs together to where you don't know what exchange sent what where i mean like that sounds like a real big privacy gain between uh exchanges and I mean, like, yeah, that, that sounds very interesting. And I'm glad somebody is uh, shining a light on it, man. I hope somebody listening picks up on it and goes and checks it out and runs with it. The point is that everyone has to be online in order to sign a transaction from a shared wallet. Uh, except the withdrawal, except when you, you want to take back your own money from the shared wallet then other people don't have to sign it and be online so right this is the this is the hard thing and that's why i said uh, well exchanges are always online so this can happen between exchanges it's a ambitious goal but uh, anyway yeah we'll see what happens with john john carvalho talk yeah. about it actually something else first <clears throat> um Roast Beef merged a uh, spontaneous payments into LND. So as of now, um, ding, 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 ding. We can do that. <clears throat> and um, I think uh, it's finally, uh, yeah, like nine days ago, I think things got uh, polished and updated. And it's going to be... Uh, 
pretty much the state it's at now is what's going to get into the next uh, Bolt specification version. But spontaneous payments, no payment request necessary. It can actually um, carry in the onion routing blob things like an account ID if you're depositing or an API call or something. And I think <clears throat> that particularly should be useful for things like uh, Shared Bits, the um, API monetization project, uh, starting off with uh, like gambling and financial data. And, you know, it's pretty cool. But uh, I do think the one thing to consider, which a few different people brought up in this uh, pull request is the potential for spam. And so that can both um, a couple people on test net uh, back uh, some months ago when this was first being tested, it can just crash your node outright. <clears throat> but also I think uh, another thing to consider is that accepting these payments and having this flag flipped on would also open you up to just a huge growth in your channel state data <clears throat> because each one of these payments would be a new channel state and if somebody were to say spam you with a, a bunch of very tiny payments that could quickly add up to a lot of data that your node has to keep track of to monitor past channel states and just overall how much space is being used so while i do think that this is a very useful thing I also think that you should be situationally aware before you actually deploy this. I mean, you know, make sure that uh, a, a node you have set up accepting these spontaneous payments can actually handle uh, load if people were to start peppering you with very small payments, um, that the machine can actually handle that and that you're not opening yourself up to pretty much just being DDoS'd offline. But that said, I think overall it's a pretty nice step forward that uh, the whole payment invoice, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's nice to have more control over when you're accepting payments, but it is also a big loss in some use cases to lose that push-based nature of payments with Bitcoin. Yeah, and ding, ding, ding. Lightning invoiceless lightning. I mean, we've been seeing all these lightning network transactions where everybody says, send me an invoice. And now that's not going to be the norm again. Like that's pretty big to where, uh, I mean, a lot of people will see the whole process is a lot easier and uh, more fluid and, you know, possibly, yeah, bring in a lot more people. I mean, these are like these sort of like uh, low barriers to entry that manage to keep things in a tenable direction. So you know, unleashing the chain on this. Let's see where it goes. Alrighty then. I guess uh, next up, uh, second to last. So uh, Bitcoin error log, John Carvello actually wrote a op-ed piece on Bitcoin Magazine. Um, I don't know, it's a couple of days ago at this point. And, you know, really it's... <clears throat> You know, some things I'm not really too happy about this with, but on the flip side, I do really agree with his overall point. <clears throat> and it's pretty much kind of referring to 
a little bit of the the Segwit 2x and UASF situation back in 2017 and just how many of these businesses involved really abused that centralized role they played to try to pretty much hijack Bitcoin. And he kind of goes into alluding a bit to what BitRefill is doing, um, you know, where you can kind of hybridize the, the types of trust models when you start looking at things like Lightning Network. You know, one of the examples is those four turbo channels that uh, we covered a while back, where you can effectively <clears throat> purchase a channel from them and start using it instantly before it's even confirmed. And see what he, what they're what the the point he's trying to make here is they they've kind of leveraged that point where they are a centralized point. You do have to trust them until that channel confirms. And then at that point, that, that trust just melts away and it gets minimized to the point where the only thing you're trusting them to do is route your payments. And if they were to ever refuse to do that or start acting maliciously, like you're still in control of your money and still able to move that out and go somewhere else. And, you know, just the point that when you're you're building on Lightning, like there's a lot more spectrum of trust model here that you have open to you. Like you can heavily centralize things while removing that trust that, you know, somebody's not going to run away with your money. Because despite being heavily centralized, if you want to build that way on Lightning Network, you're still in control of your money. And that there's that part of, of the trust and centralization completely removed from the picture. And Lightning allows you to really gradually move through that spectrum instead of just having the two points that you have to pick from. And given the fact that Lightning is just a top layer protocol, like there, there is no consensus rule. There is no thing that you have to be exactly in uh, compatibility with to have any kind of utility like if if people wanted to right now they could fork the lightning client of their choice tweak things around and make a protocol that's not completely compatible with the existing one and it could still be used and if people use that new protocol and build a network on it it's still connected to bitcoin you can still use that and get value out of it and even that the possibility exists to have bridges that could bridge those independent networks with different protocols so that they can interact through bridges that are compatible with both in a, a kind of a adapter protocol. And like this just really opens up a shit ton of competition and, and kind of greases the wheels for a lot faster development and experimentation than at the base layer of Bitcoin itself. And ultimately, like this applies to really any kind of second layer protocol constructed right or even service uh, built on top of Bitcoin. And he's entirely right. Like this, this is just Bitcoin on crack on, on these second layers where you can just do whatever the hell you want. And if people like it, if they find value in it and use it, then it will thrive. And if they don't, then it'll shrivel up and die. And the, these things, this kind of Darwinian market competition between things built on top of Bitcoin can happen at an amazingly faster pace 
than at the, the core consensus layer itself. And like, this is really just fundamentally changing the, the fucking ball and the, and the rules when it comes to Bitcoin development. And it's going to be a really interesting thing going forward. And, you know, like I said, when you look at the, the turbo channel feature, not feature product that BitRefill is building, like there's risk they can get ripped off. Like there's risk you can get ripped off, but all of the risk is balanced on one side where you opt into that willingly. And it's pretty fucking minimized compared to all the other centralized things out there in this space. And you can always just iterate and improve and remove more and more of that trust. And it's going to be really interesting going forward because, you know, like he points out in this op-ed, like the companies that move in this direction and continually improve, they're way more agile, way more secure, and are going to wind up eating the lunch of companies like Coinbase because they're actually adapting and using the full potential of Bitcoin. And I think at the end of the day, that's what is going to win out in the market. So it's like, you, yeah. if, if you haven't read this piece yet in full, I, like, I would really give it a read through. It's not that long. And uh, I think you'll get a, a better gist of the meaning from John's own words than me just butchering the hell out of them, really. All right. Do you guys have comments? Or should we move on to the final thoughts? I mean, don't you uh, have some? Or I guess you're a yes, yes. I, I wanted to say that that I give that to the final thoughts. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I'm just uh, gonna say that. Yeah, I need to go back and uh, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I haven't read it yet, John. But I'm gonna go read it, man, because uh, yeah, definitely gonna see some interesting points from his perspective over there at BitRefill and everything they're doing with like. So yeah, all right. now final thoughts. <laughs> okay. So as we all know that uh, it was Bitcoin Pizza Day last last week, right? Anyway, um, when a guy called Laszlo Hanyats uh, spent $10,000 for two pizza, uh, 10, <laughs> no, 10,000 Bitcoin for two pizza. And... Uh, that was the first Bitcoin purchase ever. And we had a meetup in Hungary in this uh, Bitcoin pizza meetups so of people were eating pizza and I went to to this meetup. I don't really go to meetups in Hungary, but now I went and I actually met a lot of people who I, I've been I've been in really good relationship in 2000. 14, yeah, that's when I, I was going to Bitcoin meetups here and uh, man, so many people are, went into ICOs and there was even a guy that wanted to convince me that Hyperledger is how good, but there were even, even really good good people and, 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 and nice to meet. So it was an interesting experience. Now, what I wanted to, to say is that uh, Laszlo Hanyac, who, who who bought the pizzas in 2011, no, 2010. Uh, he's actually, I mean, he has a Hungarian name. So we were all thinking that what 
the heck is going on here? Is, is he Hungarian or, or what? So, and he actually created the Twitter uh, profile, so you can go follow him, Laszlo Hanyac. And, and I messaged him, and actually, yes, he said he was born in Hungary. So that's quite interesting. It's like a lot of a lot of famous Bitcoiners from Hungary who people don't even know they they were originally from Hungary, like Nick Sabo too. Uh, yeah. So so anyway, if you wanna go follow Laszlo Anyac on Twitter, uh, hopefully he's a nice guy and hopefully he's not he did not become a shitcoiner. So yeah, that's it. What's your final thoughts? Well, I'm just going to comment on that real quick. Uh, don't forget LN.pizza, you know, like, uh, geez, I'm kind of just curious, like thinking like they should put out their statistics of how many pizzas they bought with Bitcoin or, you know, lightning on Bitcoin. And uh, yeah, that would be interesting. Maybe Domino's will be the first like next Bitcoin pizza day. I'm going to predict that one of these Bitcoin pizza days, one of these major pizza outlets is going to have a promotion for Bitcoiners one day. But all right, I'll go with my final thought next and might, uh, I don't know, get you a little red face, uh, no part, is, uh, you know, now Zero Link is curriculum at Stanford University, man. That is incredible, dude. I saw this, you know, you post this and I was just like kind of floored by it and surprised I hadn't seen enough people uh, recognize what's going on there. And yeah, I just wanted to put that out there and, you know, kind of just, yeah, congratulate you. I'm sure everybody watching the show and on the show is happy for uh for you and you know it'd be very interesting to attend that class one day <laughs> yeah that's a quick context on it that uh it it was actually the exact same guy i was talking about before the uh what was his name again um uh, moment who was doing the ethereum mixing uh, and how oh, istvan istvan andras Sheresh. Uh, yeah, so he he was actually who who showed me that Don Benet. I don't know if you heard about Don Benet. He's a superstar. He he explained it like he he explained it like this. Okay, look how many citations I have in Google Scholars two, and look how many citations Don Benet has in Google Scholars tens of thousands. <laughs> so so yeah, and and it's his course. In, in one chapter, there is zero link. So yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Stanford University, like I, that's yeah. If I if I ever decide to go back to university again and finally finish it, maybe maybe this will be on. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe you'll be walking up there giving a commencement speech, and they'll be giving you an honorary degree one day. That that would be awesome. I'll be there. <clears throat> Um, um, professor, um, I'm I'm gonna get up and give the the talk on this topic today. Um, I designed it. <laughs> <laughs> you friggin' ac academia! Everybody's stealing credit. We Vitaly got an honorary degree before, so. <laughs> Heck yeah, man! Janine, Janobi, you guys got a final thought? Uh, my final thought is only that May 30th is going to be a big day because um, obviously you probably heard that there is an additional 17 charges added
for Julian Assange in a superseding indictment, which we completely expected to happen. And that means he faces in total up to 175 years in prison if they give him the maximum sentence. Um, and so on May 30th is going to be the um, another procedural hearing in terms of um, the U.S. is required to present evidence that demonstrates cause to then go into a whole um, the actual extradition hearing where they go through all the details of the case, uh, which is scheduled for June 7th. Um, but May 30th is the big day because that's when the UK decides whether there's enough cause to continue. So that's going to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, I will end on something. Um, I guess less depressing for me, but let's see how the audience takes it. Uh, so I'm going to officially be retiring from uh, Block Digest um, from now on. I'm what? never doing this again. I'm going to go um, be a hermit on this beach here. Nice. Okay, guys. So what's are we going to so do bye now? Bye, everybody. Hey. It's nice to know. Go away. We got to reformat this show all of a sudden. <laughs> that looks like a beach. If there's a beach to retire on, it'd be there. Alrighty, though. You know how we know uh, that you are not serious? Because you would have said Thailand, that's not this beach. No, this beach has cleaner water. But oh, everybody no. else will see you on Wednesday, guys. I will never see you again. Adios. Later, everyone. Bye. Bye. Oh my God, now the beast got.